morning, church. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. That's on page 2 of your pew Bible, if you want to turn there now. Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everyone. Well, ready or not, Christmas season is upon us. I hope you had a good, like, Thanksgiving and are getting ready. Students, I know you got a couple weeks left till finals. And, uh, man, overall, it's a really fun season. But it does kind of sneak up on us. And one of the gifts of Advent is to just slow down, mark this season a little bit, help our hearts to focus in the cacophony of all the noises of the things we're told that we're needing, things we're told if we give this, then we'll be loved and valuable. I mean, all the things that, like, are uh, tugged on our hearts during this season are pretty remarkable. And there are, like, real needs. There are big things happening around the world that this time of year, like, highlights for us the opportunity to give. And so just a lot kind of swirling in our hearts. And Advent for us is a season just to kind of anchor us a little bit in that space. So I mentioned at the beginning, I'm not sure what your traditions are, if you're maybe your very first time to church or 
you grew up in a church that didn't celebrate Advent, but our church has found it helpful to just give us some uh, rails to run on for a couple of weeks leading up to Christmas. Advent is designed to do two things, to celebrate the first coming of Christ and to long for his second coming. So it, it sits us in an interesting place of both hope and honesty. And actually, I don't think those are opposites at all. Like there is a, a hope that we have that actually allows us to be honest. Honest that there is a real hope. Our, our choices are not just sentimentality or cynicism in this season. We can actually have genuine, solid, historic hope. Hope that what you're experiencing isn't like just for no reason. Hope that God's with you. Hope that, hope that things will actually change one day. Hope that you're seen in the middle of the suffering. Hope that God honors what's happening in your life. Like there, there's real reasons for hope. And that hope lets us be honest about the things that are not the way we wish they were. Things that we long for. Things that we wish were not broken. Th things that we are praying about maybe for, for years or decades. The kind of ache and longing in our heart finds space and advent as well. And so because it sits between the first coming of Christ where God kept his promise to send a Messiah to come and make all things new and the promise of the second coming where he'll return to fully bring that around, to bring that about. What we first taste now in early redemption, we see kind of in full bloom as Christ comes again. But that he's coming back means you have every reason to have these aches and longings. Like that if he wasn't coming back, we would have everything we needed now. And so where you feel some loss, Advent gives you an opportunity to take that loss and longing, be honest about it, but bring it to God in a hopeful way. I think sometimes we can just use honesty and, and again, move towards some sort of cynicism or something like that. But a biblical honesty takes all of it into account, which is honest about the fact that Christ promised to come and make all things new and to return. And when that happens, he will radically rescue and save, and he will bring order to the world the way he, he promised. We'll go back to the way we read in Genesis 1 and 2 before this text of the way God created things to be in perfect harmony and unity. That, that's what we're longing for. So everything you feel that's not that, it's appropriate to just name it and to talk about it. And I want to help this season, so I don't know if you again never celebrate Advent, maybe we'll, we'll light candles, we'll sing some Christmas songs, our newsletter will kind of feature uh, articles and thoughts around this season, but we'd love to get you some resources. Uh, it's appropriate just to kind of slow your heart down at home, outside of this room during the week. And so our newsletter had a couple of those resources. Um, if you missed those, I'd be happy to forward that to you. You could just email me. But essentially, just taking some time to remember the promises of God to ground us both in this hope and in this honesty. I want to just invite you to that. And maybe you've never done that before. I think it would be a really meaningful thing for you the next four weeks leading up to Christmas just to kind of quiet yourself and ask for God to speak in those spaces. And you might be surprised what he says. It might turn up either that, that hope or, or that longing. Um, you'll have actually a space to actually bring those to Jesus and, and again to tie them to the story that God's been telling. So, so let me just pray for us as we start. I want to like um, give you some some handholds for this season um, and kind of weave the story that God has been telling about the promised Messiah through the Old Testament that sets us up to welcome him at Christmas. But, but I just want to be honest that our hearts are pretty crowded. So let me just pray for us and ask for God to speak to us now. Would you, would you bow your head? Jesus, we um, just calm our hearts for a moment and we ask for your help. 
I'm trying to give words to what feels like a busy season or a crowded season, a complicated season where there's a lot of things to celebrate and be excited about, and there's things that we wish were different. Even, even Thanksgiving, just this week, would have highlighted both things that we're grateful for and places where we feel like an ache and a loss and a longing, things that we wish were different. So Jesus, thanks that you came, and thanks that you promised to come again, and help us stand in the middle in this season to be honest about the hope that we have in you. So for my brothers and sisters who, who tend to kind of go towards despair or cynicism, uh, would you give them an encouragement? Would you use these passages of Scripture to point to the fact that you keep promises, that you do what you promised you would do? I pray that would give them like a substantial hope to stand on. And for those who tend to maybe move across the surface really quickly and and have a hard time being honest about what's difficult and would rather not feel those things or not name those things, I just pray for like a courage and a welcome from you that all of their life matters to you and they could be honest in this season. So, So keep us out of sentimentality, keep us out of cynicism and ground us in a kind of hope that's not just wishful thinking, it's not just um, driven by songs and a season, but it is driven in you, that finds fulfillment in you, that finds, finds substantial hope in you. So, so ask that in Jesus' name, uh, because you promised to come again. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this word Advent simply means like arrival or coming. And if you just drop in the Christmas story with this baby in a manger, if that's the first thing that you read, the Bible can be kind of confusing. Like, what's the deal with this baby? Why are people bowing down to him? Why are they giving him gifts? What's the big deal with this virgin who's giving birth? Like, there's a lot of things that you may struggle to make sense of if you just drop in at the Christmas scene that we'll celebrate Christmas Eve here in just a couple of weeks. The good news is that the Bible tells a story for thousands of years before that that prepare our hearts for that moment. And as I wrestled with kind of how to focus us this Advent, I, I thought about taking the promises we see, and they're all over the place. The promise that God was going to send one, this descendant of David, this ultimate king, this one who would, who would reign for forever, this root of Jesse. He was going to send that one, and he was going to accomplish justice and peace and mercy and righteousness. And so I thought about taking all of those themes and just doing a week on each of those, which would be really good for our souls just to hear each of those. And the more I got into the passages, I realized like all of those are in all of the passages. It's like there's one message of Advent, one message of this Christmas season, and that it's this bundle of God's justice and mercy and righteousness and peace. It flows together, so to speak, maybe even like in one big river. And so I was talking with Stephen Ellison earlier in the week, and we we're kind of wrestling through what passages to choose. And he said, hey, what if, what if that's actually the way it's designed to work? What if that thread or that stream moves all throughout Scripture, what if instead of like taking isolated parts of it, we just told the story of how God has been moving towards his people with this promise to come and bring peace and righteousness and mercy and justice. So we just stopped for a second and looked at the passages and saw from the historical books, from the Pentateuch, from the poetry, from the prophets, this consistent promise and thought maybe it would be encouraging for you to hear the fact that God has made a consistent promise to you. A promise to make all things new. A promise to actually come and make right what was wrong and to heal what's been broken. And he's promised it not just in a few isolated places. The story of the Bible is the story of that promise. And and it begins in Genesis chapter 3. 
And with this idea of like a stream running through, when I read a scholar this week that talked about this Genesis 3 passage, particularly verse 15, kind of being the headwaters of that promise, I thought that's a really helpful way to think about these next couple of weeks. So can you imagine with me the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk down a river together. And it's a river that starts here in chapter 3, verse 15. The first time we see the promise of a child that would come to make all things new. It really is like the headwaters, the place that it begins. And, and the way rivers work, and, and I had coaches for geography, so I'm not exactly sure I know how rivers work, but my Googling quickly last night taught me that you have all these tributaries that kind of flow into the river. So what starts pretty small at the headwaters, because of the way the continent is kind of shaped, this river grows and grows and grows the farther that it goes downstream. So if you can imagine then like the Psalms and the Prophets and the historical books as these tributaries that are flowing into this same stream, same promise. It's the same river, God promising to do righteousness and justice and mercy to come and actually make all things new. We'll trace that theme so that it gets to this space that it's this massive, massive river. And with that in mind, I just kind of smiled this week as I thought about the way the Bible promises that at the end, there will be this river that flows from the temple of God. And it's stretching a little bit what's happening there just for our Christmas river metaphor. But just to think about this river ultimately flows to the nations. It ultimately flows and covers the earth. It ultimately covers everything that God has created with his glory. This river is an unstoppable river. It starts small here, this little passage. It's full of all kinds of struggle and strife and pain and sin and brokenness and temptation. That's be really fear. I'm by the riverbanks. Would you engage with us these next couple of weeks and maybe new or maybe for you as you think about what he promised to where you actually are, to what you do and divorce and unfaithfulness and addiction and war and enmity. Things that mark your story. It's also full of joy and blessing and kindness and goodness, things that mark your story. This Advent story is big enough to give meaning to your story is what I want to say. Actually, I think the, the story the world wants to tell us, specifically even like the story of holidays, of like this is the moment where you put cash in the bank relationally with your family to get you through the next year. It's the moment where you buy off things and make purchases to kind of earn back favor. It's the moment where you actually are supposed to be happy for just this like 72 hour period. Like that story I think is a suffocatingly small story. It's too small to hold all the things that your story has. But the Advent River, the Christmas River, the story of the Bible is is big enough to kind of put all of your longings and losses in it. That This meta-narrative of redemption that I want us to kind of journey through the next couple of weeks I think will give some, some meaning and some hope and some honesty to your story. So, so in that space, I want us to focus this morning, particularly on verses 15 from chapter 3. It's actually what scholars would call the, the proto-euangelion, the first explanation of the gospel. It's the first time we see God promising to come and send one who would defeat our ancient enemy. Look with me in verse 15 of chapter 3. It's on page 3 if you're in the pew Bible. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman he's speaking to the serpent, 
this deceiver, this liar. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in this, what you see is God saying to the serpent, a child is going to come. A child will be born from the line of this woman and he will actually come and deliver a death blow to your head. The word is the same bruise there, but a mortal blow to the head versus a a strike to the heel. And you could compare what Christ did to defeat sin and death ultimately with what he did on the cross in that space. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would ultimately do. Now, I don't think Adam and Eve had a full understanding of that in that moment. I don't think when God said that they went to the cross, they went all the way to Nazareth, they went all the way to Jerusalem. I don't think they had that kind of understanding. But I do think they understood the need for God to come and do something to make things right again. They had just come out of this beautiful garden that he had blessed the world with, that he had created in perfect spaces. Chapter 1 and 2 is where the story begins, and it's God creating, sustaining, ordering in beautiful, beautiful ways. And actually the story bookends. The book of the Bible goes all the way to Revelation, and you see the last two chapters there are very similar to the first two chapters here in Genesis. You see another garden. You see another, another way that God is walking with His people. You see this tree of life there again. You see the renewal and restoration of all things at the end. So the first two chapters and the last two chapters kind of bookend this story. And if you were to walk through both of them, like just this week, just take those four chapters and see the similarities, you can't miss the idea that God is telling one large meta story. And it's the story that actually is centered in the Christmas story. So you have these two bookends, and then if you come in just one chapter, so from chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis and from chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, if you go to chapter 3 and chapter 20 of Revelation, what you see there is the enemy of God. You see the temptation here in chapter 3, and in chapter 20 of Revelation, you see God finally defeating the serpent. So, so in the bookends, or the way God designed things, You have the problem kind of in the next phase. And the rest of the story in the middle is where you and I live. This this longing. God making promises and us needing Him to actually engage with us. God saying He's going to do things. Us struggling to believe Him. It's the struggle and the hope of humanity is the rest of that story. And in the middle of that, God keeps His promise to send His Son to come and make all things New. So, so in that space, you have these bookends. And the invitation in Revelation is that we would come, that we would actually respond. It's this idea that this descendant's going to come, and Jesus says in Revelation that he is the root of Jesse. He's the promised one. He actually just names that in chapter 22. And the next passage says, Come. Come all who are thirsty. Come all who, who have need. Come to me and be satisfied. So this is not a story that you just watch. It's not a story you just observe. It's a story that is designed to engage with your whole person as an invitation to come and have those longings actually satisfied. So, so there's a familiarity that we've got to be careful with, both of a passage like this and the larger Christmas season. But, but if you're overly familiar with it, you're going to miss the personal invitation from this one who came inviting you to come. He says come. And so this whole season, I'm just going to be praying for us as a church that we would come, that we would go and drink, that we would go and be satisfied, that we would actually go to him in ways we actually have our hearts healed and restored. That will give us hope. It will make us honest. 
and it will give us a space for the longings that we have. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk through the passage kind of in three movements. I want to talk about the crisis in this text that necessitates the need for Christmas. And then I want to talk about the consequences that make us long for Christmas. And then I want to talk about the child that's promised at Christmas. So look with me in chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis. Let me just read the first seven verses. And I want you to notice the crisis that's here, the crisis that's in this text. So it comes from this beautiful garden where God had given roles and boundaries. He told them to keep the land and to work it, which we talked about in our vocation series. is like priestly language, the way God designed things. We see a beautiful uh, explanation of a husband and wife relationship of one flesh with no shame. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, a crisis of questioning Is God good? Is he trustworthy? Did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but he did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. A crisis of minimizing what God had said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A crisis of, of promising something that actually was going to destroy them. Making something like offer as a sound of something that was nice and good and pleasant and beautiful. You're going to actually be like God, he says. There's a crisis to say to the creature, if you take this fruit, you'll be like the creator. And that will actually set you up in beautiful ways because God's been withholding from you. And instead of actually having life, it does bring about death. So this God-like temptation to say to them, hey, if you take this fruit, you'll be like God himself, creates this desire inside. So verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We'll unpack some more the consequences here, but just even in that little verse, what you see is this beautiful relationship that God had set up where there would be full acceptance and exposure. You'd be fully seen and still be loved. Now, because of this lie, a crisis comes where there's alienation. There's shame for the very first time. There's this deep, deep brokenness. The crisis that necessitated Christmas is the idea here that the ancient enemy told God's people that he wasn't enough that they needed more to be happy, and that they actually deserved more, should take matters into their own hands. And if they did that, then they would really have life. God says you will die if you do this, and that's minimized. And they're told, actually, no, the way to life is around God. The way to life is actually not with Him, kind of in your purview as the uh, devotion of your worship. It's actually you taking matters into your own hands. So there's a crisis here. And I was thinking like every Christmas movie has like crisis in it. Whether it's the crisis of like the latest toy that's sold out and the dad runs around town and tackles people and fights in the store to kind of find this one toy. Like that's a kind of crisis. Maybe there's, there's a movie that we watch Christmas with the Cranks where they've 
planned something else for their holiday and then last minute their daughter says they're coming home and so there's this crisis and there's enmity in the neighborhood about decorations and so so there's this moment where there's this need this crisis is created i bet you if you track every christmas movie there's some sort of crisis there's the ham gets run over the toy runs out there's can't get off work in time even like gremlins i don't know there's like crisis like an do you know gremlins is a holiday movie i don't know it's 1980s come on come on 1980s that's a massive crisis to have gremlins on your hands in that space, right? But you have this, like, crisis in all these movies. And, and it's interesting just to stop and say, okay, there, there's, like, this surface crisis of, like, it's the toy, but there's something deeper the movie is normally telling you about family, right? About misplaced priorities. It's the dad was working too much, and that's why he didn't get the toy in time. And so it's about the toy, but it's more about your priorities as a family, right? There's, there's a sense in our world that, Christmas points to something that's not the way it's supposed to be. And there's some sort of like problem that needs to be solved. Of course, all those narratives wrap up in 90 minutes with everybody getting what they want and hot cocoa around the tree and everything's fine again. But actually, it's leaving us in a space where we can be invited to be honest about the crises that we feel. Not, Not so much about toys and hams and family situations, but, but things that are much, much, much deeper. This text says there's a crisis that happens because we rebel against God. We're in a space of beautiful creation in the garden, the way things were designed to be, the way they will be again at the end. And because we rebel against God, everything breaks. Friends, I wanted to say like Christmas is for crisis. And I don't know where you are right now in your story. As I'm trying to like even name the Advent story as long and there's lots of layers to it. You might find yourself like in an acute crisis. I want you to hear the good news that Christmas is actually aimed at resolving that. And, and maybe not the thing on the surface that you feel the most, but the thing that's, that's most deeply tied to that, the thing that's most broken about that, that's the place that God actually intends for Christmas to meet us because Christmas isn't about the stuff that we get it's about what God was going to give us this one who was going to come and make all things right and new again so just stop for a moment the Christmas narrative takes us much much deeper it identifies a deeper deeper problem which makes the good news of Christmas also much much deeper before we get to the good news though let's look at the consequences that makes us long for Christmas I think in the next couple of verses, what you see is the way we are living our lives now in this in-between space of God kind of coming and moving towards us for things not being fully the way they are. We live with constant strife and enmity and things that are not the way they're designed to be. So we'll go back in verse 7 in chapter 3. It says this, And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, which again is the entrance of shame. What we're going to see in this text is that there's enmity all over this thing. There's pain all over this thing. There's enmity between man and God, between man and man, between man and himself, between man and creation, and between man and the ancient enemy of God. So it starts with this place of shame, this brokenness with himself. And then he heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in verse 8. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of God. So you have now what was a beautiful union, a beautiful relationship, now is marked with hiding. There's enmity between God and man. And he hides among the trees of the garden, and God calls out to him and says, Where are you? 
And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. So there's fear now that comes. So one of the consequences of this thing that happened in the garden, hearing this temptation, isn't just an ancient thing that happened with our first parents with fruit and a snake. It's marking how we relate to each other, how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves. And he was afraid because I was naked, so I I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? God asks. Have you eaten the tree from which I command you not to eat? And the man said, Now to blame the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So you have shame, you have hiding, you have fear, you have blame. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Another round of blame and enmity between us and the ancient enemy of God. So here's God's response. He starts with the serpent. And he says, Because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's this constant spiritual struggle. There's this battle, and the New Testament will call it between the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's this this thing that's bigger than us that we're actually battling. There's enmity at that space. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that. And the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain. You'll see the word pain as well when he talks directly to the man. He said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. This family space is going to be harder than it has to be. In pain you shall bring forth children, and there's going to be enmity with your husband. Your desire will be contrary to or to overtake your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's this power struggle in a marriage relationship that was once marked with a one flesh beautiful openness that now is marked with with being in opposition that's marked with struggles with power it's marked in spaces where the most intimate relationships we have are often the ones that are most painful one of the consequences of what happened there is this enmity in these personal relationships and then to adam to the man he said because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which i commanded you you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Again, in pain, now, now your work sh- you shall eat over the days of your life. The thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it were you taken. For you are dust into dust. You shall return. So, so we see strife and separation and enmity. We see personal relationships broken. We see power struggles. We see fear. We see blame. We see hiding. We see shame. We see that everything is actually not the way it's supposed to be. And we just stop and ask, does that feel familiar at all? The consequences of this crisis, the reason why we actually long for Christmas is because what was broken is everything. All the layers of your life have a shattered nature to them now that we actually are, are aching for it to be made right. So, so to the degree that the details of that are probably quite different, the effects of that resonate with us. What you see here is the consequences of sin, I think, marks your family of origin. It marks your relationships now. It marks the way you do your job. It marks this body. It marks your past. It marks how you think about your future. It marks how you relate to, ev- to everything. And in that space, then, there's this longing for Christmas that we have, which makes this promise of the Christmas child such good news in verse 15. Go back to that for for a moment. What does God promise in the middle of this crisis? 
in the middle of these consequences. He promises to send a child. The, the word is offspring or, or seed, a descendant. One who would come from the line of this woman who was going to actually come and do battle with our ancient enemy. And the Scriptures would say that moment is the place we look back to to see God saying He's going to restore. He's going to renew. He's going to make things actually different. And this promise of the descendant to come marks the rest of the book of Genesis. This book of origins, if you go to to the next chapter with the children of Adam and Eve, you'll see this offspring language. You'll see it with Noah. You'll see it with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Over 200 times in the Old Testament, this idea of offspring and seed is there. It's a major theme in the Old Testament, promising this passage, promising what this verse says, that there would one day be one who would come and would make all things right. To, to bruise the head of the serpent and to defeat our ancient enemy would then begin to unravel all the things that were broken. This seed, this offspring, it's just something that we trace and you see it expanding. You see it from this moment here that's at the headwaters into things that grow where you'll see he's a king. You'll see he's a priest. You'll see in Isaiah that he dies in our place. You'll see that it's an eternal descendant. It couldn't be just a man. You'll see more texture and explanation of this promise and all the tributaries that flow into this mighty river of what God promised to come and do to renew and restore all things. But in this space, what you see in this first little scene is God making a promise to make all things new, which makes us honest about what still needs to be restored and very, very hopeful that he's actually going to help. Genesis is a book of first, of a book of beginnings is the way it starts. And there's a lot of firsts in just this section, right? The first of creation, the first temptation, the first brokenness. There's the first baby, Chris. Both our kids. Actually, I was nervous that we didn't have one for Lucas, that we had left him out, but we actually have one for both children, which I was like, as a second born, I was glad that we weren't like hosing him and leaving him behind. Someone actually gave us an ornament that is our first Christmas here in Johnson County, our first Christmas here in Overland Park as we were doing ministry here. And there's an ornament in there that is the first Christmas without a friend of mine who was killed in a car wreck that his wife like sent ornaments and said, hey, this is the first Christmas that you're celebrating without, without your friend. So on our tree then, you have like beautiful things and things we're so excited about. And there is embedded in that longing and loss. When you think about the firsts in this season, for some of you, it's the first Christmas married. It's the first Christmas with the baby. It's the first Christmas after college. It's the first Christmas with a job that pays you holiday pay where you can be off and actually make some money. It's the first kind of post-graduation. It's the first maybe time you're on your own. And maybe there's an excitement to that and maybe there's a sadness to that. Maybe it's the first Christmas you have without significant loved ones. The first Christmas where your singleness feels like a bigger situation. Maybe, maybe it's your first Christmas without a job. In those firsts, I want to invite you to bring all the things that this season highlights and tie it to these firsts. 
the first sin, the first brokenness, the first breaking of everything, the first enmity, the first strife, the first blame, the first shame, and the first promise that God is going to come and make all things new. Could you be honest this season with hope, honest about the longings that you have, but also honest that there is real confidence, real reason to be hopeful in this season? I want to just read two more verses that we didn't have read out loud, but go with me back in Genesis chapter 3 as we kind of wrap and ask about making some application. Verse 20, we get some hope. Past just this promise of a descendant, we see a couple of beautiful things. Uh, It says in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. So you get in that little verse there, this renewal or this restoration or, or bending the ark back the other way. Here's Eve who took the fruit that led to death. And right after that cursing, it's not a mistake that the next verse would be, hey, this woman is the mother of all living things. There's a, a kind of declaration of hope and even who Eve is, what her body's able to do, how she plays a role in this story that, that puts us in a space when we see genealogies in the New Testament that feature and highlight women there to see the role that God chooses joyfully to play with women. And the, the role of women that God joyfully uses in the redemption story just gives a ton of hope. And in the space of all this death, there's this reminder that she is the mother of living. And not just that, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and clothed them. So you saw earlier where they felt shame and so they grabbed some fig leaves and covered themselves, kind of in a makeshift barrier between them and each other and them and God, but it didn't actually cover over their shame. And now in verse 21, you see not just the first promise of a, of a descendant, but the first promise of a sacrifice. You, you see in verse 21, in the middle of this story, that the first time that God foreshadows the kind of way He's going to accomplish this restoration and renewal, it will come through sacrifice. It will come actually through the shedding of blood, and it will be the ultimate sacrifice that will finally fully clothe and cover us. This Christmas child that's promised to come and defeat our ancient enemy comes to make all the sad things untrue comes to actually reverse the curse comes to deal with all the consequences and he does it not through teaching us things or showing us things but through dying on a cross in our place as our sacrifice the christmas story is a hopeful story that gives you lots of room to be honest about the longings that you have because the one who promised to come has already come This sacrifice has already happened. Hebrews 9 tells us that He came once and He came to deal with sin. And then He's coming again to come and make all things new and restore everything. So your biggest problem has already been addressed. And then God promises to actually fulfill all that He's promised in ways that actually renew and restore in complete ways. So we stand in this season between the first coming and the second coming. And again, this language in Revelation where we see how this happens and Jesus saying, hey, I am the descendant. I am the one who came from Jesse. I am the one who's the descendant of David, the one that we'll look at in weeks to come that is promised is kind of shaping of this river more and more and more. There's an invitation in that space to come. So when we sing in a moment during communion, O come, O come, Emmanuel, 
We're saying that God came. Maybe you notice that already in this passage where they first sin and they go hide themselves. God comes for them. What a beautiful thing God is like that he comes to us in our brokenness. We would rather hide. We're afraid. We would rather blame. We'd rather wallow in shame. And he moves towards us. He comes for us. And the ultimate coming was through his son Jesus, through a virgin born in a manger, who would grow to be a man who would die in your place. This is the good news of the Christmas story. So a couple of applications, and then we'll take communion together. I I just thought, like, what would you do with this? Okay, this is helpful. Maybe tie some of your current longings to this, but can I give you, like, two truths or two things to think about, two, two applications? First one is this. Know that God is committed to the long game of full redemption. He makes this promise thousands of years, millennium before it actually comes to pass. God is into the long game. God is playing the long game, which means there'll be moments where it seems like nothing is happening. Where you hear these promises and you wonder, like, God, are you actually at work? Are you actually moving? Are you actually doing things? We'll see actually in the story of the Old Testament, like long seasons, like 400-year stretches and 70-year stretches where where God seems to be silent or they're, they're in exile. So I think the application of that space in this telling of the long story of the headwaters moving towards this mighty river is to say that even when you can't see it, God is at work in your redemption. When you're wondering, like, where are you in this space? The fact that this little headwater of this promise in Genesis 3.15 grew to be this mighty river that would save the world, and the whole time he's keeping his promise gives you some space to put your longing in and ask, God, where are you in this? And you can ask that question confident that he is at work in the long game. Even when it doesn't seem like, and you can't trace it, and you can't point to the specific moment to know that God is taking the long time to unfold his redemption plan, kind of puts hope in the space for you where you have questions, where you have ache, where you have longing. Secondly, would you be encouraged that God plays this long game because he's committed to going at the root or at the source of your issues? I mean, he could have just struck down that snake right there in that moment and kind of put everything back together. But he knew that in this moment there was something that happened inside of our hearts that needed to be fully healed and restored and atoned for. And so God actually tells this long story, goes after our hearts in ways to fix what's deeply broken about us. It's not just the stuff on the surface that God is concerned with, although that breaks his heart and he's there with you in the pain of that. He wants to actually go beneath the surface the things that are most broken. That's why Jesus came. This Messiah we'll see as the river unfolds throughout the Old Testament came as your sacrifice to atone for your sin because that was your biggest problem. The crisis that we're looking at in this season is the enmity between you and God. That Christ came and sacrificed himself for to make a way for you to be restored and renewed. That's what we celebrate in communion every week. So as we kind of step towards this kind of first week of Advent, would you bow your head with me? Let me invite you just to pray for a moment. Ask God to speak to you. Ask God to help you. Ask God to shape your heart around these truths. Would you bring like the longings that you have? Would you be honest about the hope of what Christ provides? Ask him to speak.
promise-keeping God, thank you. Help us. Thanks that there is real hope because of who you are and what you've done. And because you kept your promise to send the offspring of Eve to come and make all things new, we have hope that you will keep your promises to fully restore and renew all things. And as we long for that, would you meet us? Would you actually nourish us now through the reminder of your sacrifice, through your broken body and shed blood? Would you feed our souls as we're weary in the longing? Would you nourish us with the truth that you keep your promises? Friends, I want to invite you to take communion if you're a follower of Jesus. There'll be gluten-free here in the middle, and then each aisle will have a station. We just tear a piece of the bread off, and we dip it in the cup, and it's a declaration that this little baby grew to be a man who died on a cross to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. So anybody who's trusting Christ, I would invite you to come and take communion. If you're not trusting Christ, just stay in your seat and pray. And the way we do it here, it won't be awkward. You can just sit and pray and ask God to speak to you if you're not ready to receive him yet. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray, but I want to invite you just to ask God to speak to you. And then as you come to communion, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you bring your longings with you to the communion table? Let me pray one more time. Jesus, come now in power. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I come when you're ready.